It's time now for Illinois Innovators, where we spotlight the trending topics in research, technology, and entrepreneurship surrounding the Granger Engineering community at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Ever wondered where the food on your plate comes from? While it is much easier at farmers markets or farm-to-table restaurants for the consumer to know its origin, supermarkets and restaurants are a little more complicated. A group led by Megan Konar, an assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering, has created the first comprehensive map detailing the food chain within the United States. The team cites 132 freight analysis framework locations to the 3,142 counties in the U.S. Those combined to form 9.5 million links. Professor Konar joins us to talk about the enormous project and more of her work. Her research focuses on the intersection of water, food, and trade. Professor Konar, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, I guess first of all, talk about the motivation. Uh, maybe a lot of it stems from the work that you already do, but uh, what what was the precipice from this? Because you're taking research, uh, I think, data from all the way back to 2012. That's right, yeah. Well, my research group were interested in the interactions between water and food systems, um, and we are really interested in trying to understand the risks that water hazards pose to our food supply chain. So water hazards, including droughts, floods, and unsustainable water use might actually make agricultural production harder in certain locations. So we um, know a good amount about what sorts of risks these hazards pose to agricultural production, but there's less understood about the risks that they pose to food supply chains. So that's really where we started. Okay, so uh, we, I talked about all the uh, the counties and the uh, and the uh, the places. I think there were, there were about eight different charts that uh, your team looked at and to try to put those all together. And this has never been done before. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So this was a very data intensive algorithm that we developed to estimate food flows between all counties in the U.S. So we brought together eight um, or so databases, open access databases that are available. And we combined them in a novel way to estimate basically where food's moving around in our country. And I I started out by talking about motivation, but uh, was there a group that's looking for you to to come up with this this, uh, data that would be helpful to to them? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, so this is part of a larger NSF project. There's a a project at NSF called the Innovations in Food, Energy, and Water Systems. And I have a grant under that umbrella uh, led by uh, Ben Ruddle out of Northern Arizona University. And the goal of our project is to basically map the food, energy, and water uh, flows throughout the U.S. And so my team was responsible for the food, but there's other researchers at other universities working on the energy layer and the water layer. Is this an efficiency uh, situation where we were trying to get the things uh, operated a little more efficiency within the country? Um, That's a good question. So that's actually, I think, an important direction that we're interested in understanding. So, you know, I think of this map as really a first step that will then enable us to go and delve deeper and ask some of these more important scientific and policy relevant questions like that. But I am interested in understanding because most supply chains, to my understanding, are 
um, developed with efficiency in mind. They're trying to be more, most efficient to save costs throughout the full supply chain so that they can offer the best price for the consumer. Um, but I'm interested in figuring out what the balance, what the you know right balance between efficiency and resiliency in food supply chains are and is the U.S. domestic food supply chain really skewed in one direction? Are we kind of really emphasizing efficiency at the potential expense to resiliency? Or are we balancing those two things really well? So that's that's something that we want to look into more. Well, I want to back up a little bit. Tell me about uh, your background. And, and uh, we, we mentioned uh, in the open uh, what your research focuses on, but uh, I'll have you maybe be a little more specific of some of the other projects you've worked on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I have done a lot of work on water resources. Uh, I've done a lot of work trying to figure out the water footprint of agriculture and food, the water footprint being similar to the carbon footprint, so how much water is embodied in each commodity that we might consume. And I've also looked at the water footprint of international trade. So we trade a lot of, we don't produce and consume agricultural items locally anymore. We often produce things in one country, trade them to other countries. So I've looked at basically the water that travels around with the international trade of food items. Um, And so then with that work, we've increasingly been curious about what things look like within one country in particular. So when you mention resiliency, are we talking uh, safety, uh, pro- not having as much waste um, mm-hmm. happen within uh, the process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are important parts of food, su- food supply chains, but my group is mostly interested in just the infrastructure movement and the infrastructure that supports food. So the resiliency would be if you had a disruption to one location of production or a, a processing location or a major conduit in your food supply chain, like a harbor or a major rail terminal, you know, what would that mean for the ability to move food to the consumers that need the food? Well, and you mentioned that um, the 2012 year was a particularly drought year in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure that skewed the results a little bit, um, but it, it shows you maybe how um, one thing one event could could play have a drastic uh, effect on the supply across the whole country and and obviously as you talked about trade throughout the world Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's true and so we're interested in so we had the data available for 2012 which was a big drought year in the u.s corn belt so there was a big loss in production of corn and soy Um, So it's possible that the estimates that we produced for the year 2012 would look different in a different year. So we do have plans to estimate food, the food supply chain for a different year. So the data that we need is only available every five years. So we could do this for 2007 as well as 2017. So we plan to do that and see how that looks. Um, But food is actually, and grain in particular, is a bit complex because there's grain storage, which was developed specifically to buffer drought events or any other sort of production shock event. So it's possible that even in a drought year that you'd still be seeing a lot of grain moving around the country because it's coming out of storage. So we're unsure exactly what the other years, how they'll compare. But in a lot of sense, the hard work has been done because you've developed the algorithm and and now you have a way to be able to take data from a different year and be able to calculate that a little more uh, Mm -hmm. quicker than you did uh, going in. 
Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the hard work was in the algorithm, which is why I've been so pleasantly surprised that this paper's gotten a lot of interest, which is great. But I thought this was a fairly dry algorithm development paper. <laughs> but it's uh, actually, um, I think it's that map. So we do present a map of food flows around the U.S. And I think that's really um, caught a lot of people's attention. But uh, to me, this was just an important methods development paper. So talk about the results. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that um, one of the things was that um, California, there's a lot of things going on, movement within California and from there. Um, I'll let you explain some of the, the key takeaways uh, from the paper. Mm -hmm. Yes, so the main thing is we wanted to estimate food movement between all county pairs. That means that we were estimating and there's roughly 3,000 counties. So that's 3,000 times 2,999 pairs. So it's about 9.5 million pairs that we had to estimate. Um, so that was the main challenge. And actually estimating zeros in a trade system is really important. And that was the main thing, the main novelty in our approach was trying to figure out, because we know all counties are not going to be connected with all other counties. So trying to figure out where there is no connection was really one of the key key um, components. And then also we looked at trade systems where we do have data. So for all the way from global trade, which is the kind of most, the largest spatial scale that we have food supply chain information at, all the way down to a very small scale. So household exchanges of food within a village. And we saw similar statistical distributions of food mass flux across this full range of spatial scales. So that was really our main um, insight from data that's available at other spatial scales, and we wanted to constrain our model to also have that same statistical distribution. So it's, there is a gamma mass flux distribution, which means that there's a high amount of heterogeneity. So some counties are going to be moving a lot of mass, while the vast majority are actually either not going to be connected to each other, or they're not going to be moving very much food. Um, then we do find, so that enables us to then see which counties are the kind of big nodes in our network, which ones are moving a lot of mass. And we do estimate that a lot of the counties in California are some of those those big movers of food. Um, also, um, some other counties throughout the Grain Belt and, and New York. But yeah, California really stands out. You know why? Um, it's partly because California has a lot of agricultural production. California is known as the fruit and, ve fruit and vegetable basket of the U.S. and even the world. So they grow a lot of our fruits and vegetables. They send it around the country. They ship it around the world. Um, also, they have a lot of big urban centers, so a lot of people and a lot of um, processing of the raw fruits and vegetables there. So they send a lot of that to urban centers, and they also have a lot of harbors, so they send fruits and vegetables to harbor for export. So that partly explains why California pops up in our results as being so important. Um, part of it is also a bit mechanical because the counties in the West are just so much bigger than counties in the Midwest and the East. So a bit of it is when you're disaggregating two counties, there's in the state of Illinois, for example, there's about 100 counties compared to the state of California. It's, it's closer to 25 or 30 counties. So when you're downscaling state level information, you're kind of naturally going to then estimate that counties in California have more mass flux, just partly because of their size. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, explain what uh, betweenness centrality. That mm. was a, a term that uh, I saw, and you know, I had to look it up. Uh, and I'll let you further explain what that is. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, betweenness centrality is uh, important network statistic 
that's used a lot in complex network analysis. Um, and essentially what it is, is it's a measure of the number of shortest paths in the network that go through um, any node in the network. So you can basically see, um, it's one way to assess centrality or basically how important each node is to the total architecture of that network. So if you have a lot of shortest paths that are going through one county, then that means that if that county were to be disrupted, it's an indicator that it's an important um, it's an important county for the total structure of your network. So you mentioned a lot of interest in this. Can you, and obviously we are as well. Um, why, why do you, uh, do you see that there was, there's been so much interest, uh, you know, it seems like, uh, and I just make a couple of observations as, as to, to why we are interested one food safety. Um, and so, um, I would think that having this types of, uh, type of information would help, uh, in terms of if there is a, um, you know, something happens, uh, to uh, there's a disease or something that you're able to locate maybe a little bit closer where that uh, originated from and not have to um, throw away a bunch of food that would that is good um, you know and secondly I think people there's they're they're more cognizant about where their food comes from just in general is you know the the farm to table we talked about at the beginning and and organic these are all uh, hot uh, items I think among people but that's my observation I'll <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll let you further uh, explain that mm-hmm. so why people have been so interested in this work yeah I think I mean food touches everybody. It touches so many disparate topics and disciplines. There's just been interest from uh, industry and other academic disciplines that I didn't expect to be interested. But I think it's just that, that there's people who are interested in food safety, people who are interested in the um, social aspects of food access, people who are interested in um, doing future work on these food flows to figure out the life cycle analysis of carbon in our food supply chain. Um, so I think it's just the fact that food touches so many different people and there's actually, um, surprisingly, relatively little information on food supply chains. So I've even been in touch with a lot of food supply chain managers who who need this sort of data. So it's been really, really great to hear. And you deal a lot with uh, the economics. Um, so I'll let you talk a little bit about that because um, I would think that uh, we're talking the intersection of food, water, and economics. Um, and we mentioned here transportation. I, your study touches touches a lot of uh, a lot of those of those nodes, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So the study does you know food just touches pretty much all aspects of our life, and you know I've just been thinking, why has this resonated with so many people? And I think it's really just the power of the map that shows, it really just clearly shows how all Americans are connected. We see, we hear a lot about sort of, um, you know, Americans being, um, what's it called? How we're, how we're disconnected a lot. So I think this map was really powerful just because it shows kind of clear links how rural producers are really interconnected with um, urban consumers and they're intermediated by um, industrial producers and supply chains and urban consumers in turn are reliant on, you know, those rural producers and farmers and 
urbanites are, are actually all part of the same system. So I think that's really one of the main powers of this map and the study is that it shows that all Americans are connected through our food supply chain. Well, there are a few statistics that I thought um, interesting, maybe not surprising, uh, but uh, certainly interesting uh, that uh, the U.S. produces 30% of the world's corn, 50% of the world's soybeans, 25% of the world's wheat, and uh, 70% of the sorghum. And uh, so that just shows um, just how important the United States is. And and you mentioned the fruit and vegetable uh, from California and other places. Uh, the United States, in terms of feeding the world, um, is is really uh, is, is important in that chain. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Our agricultural production is is really impressive and really a critical part of our rural economy. And it's really important to the food security of a lot of nations around the world. Um, we've done some previous work that has looked at, um, and, and cereals in particular are kind of thought to be a really important commodity for um, food security. So I don't mean like frosted flakes when I say cereals. I mean, you know, corn, wheat, um, the, the staple crops. And so we've looked at how a lot of these cereals are reliant on some key aquifers in the U.S., so some groundwater resources that we're using at an unsustainable rate. Um, so if those aquifers were to be depleted and we weren't able to grow these cereals anymore, that could have far-reaching food security implications around the world. Uh, and one other thing that I think stood out, um, you mentioned that there were 52 to 53 locks mm -hmm. within the uh, Mississippi and Ohio River valleys, and that if something happens, you know, a lot of these locks are 90, 80, 80 90 years old. Um, one of those fails for whatever reason, mm -hmm. that could really uh, disrupt the the movement of food uh, within the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, those are actually two locks, locks 52 and locks 53. They're um, named by a number. Um, and I, I um, some some readers have told me that they have started work to maintain and improve those locks, which is heartening, which is great. Um, but yes, I mean, just these two pieces of infrastructure are really critical for moving grain primarily and really heavy bulk commodities out of the Corn Belt, down the Mississippi, and then out through the Port of, uh, port of Orleans for export. Because um, I didn't actually realize how important moving um, grain on uh, river barges were. But a river barge actually carries as much grain as a thousand trucks. Wow! So by moving grain on a river barge, it's you know affordable because grain is relatively heavy for its value. So you want some affordable transportation system, and also it keeps a lot of trucks off the road. So what were the uh, some of the other takeaways that maybe you anticipated or were surprised about? Yeah. So. And so we did, you know, constrain all of our estimates with data that's available from the freight analysis framework, which is a really critical piece of data that we used in our approach um, that comes out of ORNL, which is uh, a research lab. And um, so this data, since we're constraining it with this data, things weren't completely surprising because we have a broad picture understanding of how things are moving from this other database. But what we're doing is then downscaling this database to counties, so then we're able to really figure out which counties in this more coarse data pop out as being really the big movers of food and important to the food supply chain. Um, but I guess things are not quite as surprising as they might otherwise be just because we have this 
other data that we use as our constraints because we want to make it as realistic as possible. Yeah, so the question, uh, anytime you have data, what can we do with this? Uh, now that now that you've you've mapped out uh, this food supply chain, where do we go from here? Where, what are some of the takeaways? Is, uh, you know, I mentioned a little bit about efficiency. Are there, there are things that uh, are the next steps that we can use with this information? Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, this was really just the first step that will enable, I think, a lot of future research, which is you know really exciting. Um, but just by doing this, I've learned that we still have so much to learn. So this research has led me and my research team to ask uh, many follow-up questions, such as what does this network look like in a different year? How does our food supply chain operate at the daily, monthly, and seasonal timescales, for example? Because right now it's just an annual snapshot. Um, we're really interested in understanding what the infrastructure that supports our food supply chain is and what elements of the infrastructure are most critical to the food supply chain. And then that will in turn help us answer what what can we do to ensure that our food supply chain is resilient to disturbances. So those could be, could, could you make recommendations, for instance, about other more efficient ways to transport? Um, are there uh, places in the country that uh, you could put some sort of plant or um, storage or whatever that would make uh, you know a lot of sense. Companies might be looking for 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 that uh, sort of information that uh, would help them make those kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's possible that somebody could then use our map to say, what if we add certain characteristics here or there. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be able to answer that question now, but that could be something that's done in the future, which would be pretty interesting. Well, you mentioned uh, the water, the aquifers, for instance, and um, there's certainly um, people are, they're worried about what's going to happen with, uh, with our water because that affects everything. Um, is this the type of thing that, uh, that you are watching pretty closely? Yeah, definitely. So we're really interested in water resources in my group. That's We spend a lot of time thinking about water as well as agriculture and food. And we're interested in, you know, we have a lot of likely changes in the future, which means that we're probably going to have more extreme events in water systems. We're going to have probably more droughts, probably more floods. So those are going to be hazards, um, not only to the agricultural system, but also to our food supply chain system. So we want to understand what those risks are and how the food supply chain can respond. Um, is it going to be resilient to those disturbances? Is it going to be vulnerable? Where are the um, weak points? Where are the um, resilient points? Um, also, unsustainable water use um, poses a long-term threat to our food supply chain because as I mentioned, a lot of agricultural production currently relies on groundwater resources that are being depleted, uh, which means they're being used faster than they can be recharged by rainwater. So in the future, you know, it's, it's possible we won't be able to produce um, agriculture in those places quite the same way that we are now. So food supply chains might have to reorganize to accommodate that change. Um, also, changing climate patterns might, or, or droughts in particular, can lower the river water levels, which makes it harder to transport grain commodities by barge. And transporting grain commodities by barge is very efficient. It's very cheap. And you can move a lot of grain with just one barge. And it takes a 1,000 trucks off the road. So if water levels get very low, then you might have to shift your mode of transportation, which has a ripple effect through the supply chain. 
So a couple of follow-ups to that. Um, how serious is this? How imminent um, is this uh, issue? And are there things we can do, in your estimation, um, to help uh, either A, prevent it, or uh, B, to be able to realize these things are going to happen? And, and how do we how will we be able to push through despite uh, these dramatic events? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think actually that supply chains and trade networks are one important way that we can adapt to these increasing hazards. So as droughts and floods become more frequent, actually having more connections and more complexity in our food supply chains will enable us to buffer some of these events. Um, Because if there's a drought in one location, if you're able to source your food from various locations, then that shouldn't impact your supply chain quite as much. Um, So I think supply chains actually will be one important way that we adapt to some of these future changes. Um, And in terms of the aquifers, actually, there's been a lot of exciting developments in the last couple of years, which which makes me pretty optimistic about the future of aquifers. Um, So during the California drought in 2015, the governor at the time, Jerry Brown, implemented a pretty landmark water policy, which is going to, I think, really help bring groundwater um, use within sustainable limits in California. So they have to implement sustainable groundwater management plans uh, throughout every aquifer in California starting in a couple of years. And those have to go into full force by the year 2040. So I think the Central Valley Aquifer is, is actually really heading in the right path. Um, and even the Ogallala Aquifer, which runs along the sort of eastern part of the Rocky Mountains, there's been some interesting developments there where some farmers have actually come together. Um, they've come um, together. They've realized it's a collective action problem and they have to work together if they want to ensure that groundwater is there for their their children to farm in the same way that they farm. So they've actually been voluntarily reducing their pumping in certain places in the Ogallala or High Plains Aquifer. So that also um, gives me a lot of optimism for the future for groundwater. But um, there's still definitely more to be done. Well, and we're talking in the United States here. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, the the stress levels across the world and other places that are maybe uh, uh, high populated and low resource areas are going to feel the, the stress perhaps a lot worse than here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's so this comes down to um, balancing basically local risks in your production with risks in your supply chain. So yeah, it's basically even if somewhere has there's places right now that basically are very dry, they can't grow a lot of their own food, but they have a pretty stable source of food from their supply chains um, versus other places that maybe um, themselves have a lot of hazards that threaten their own agricultural production and um, they need to they could maybe benefit from developing some uh, more stable supply chains and how much does um, do you or anticipate maybe uh, having a uh, a voice in public policy because certainly this is all great information that uh, you know our lawmakers need to know about uh, to be able to make really big decisions down the road mm-hmm. yeah and this is something that I get asked a lot and I grapple with. So I think the role of academics is to create understanding and to create knowledge that didn't exist before. Um, But policymaking is much more complex than just scientific insight or facts. You know, policy development has 
politics and ethics and culture embedded in it. So, you know, I can hopefully contribute some understanding of of one aspect that policymakers might find useful, but it's not the whole picture. They still need to weigh many more complex dimensions when when making policy. So, um, but I think as a academic, it's important to to not advocate for specific policy. It's important just to create knowledge and be a kind of a neutral arbiter of truth. And then uh, from this study, where do you go from here? What's 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 the next uh, step in terms of uh, taking? Uh, we mentioned a little bit uh, about uh, we have the data. What do we do with it? But uh, what's what's next for your group? Yeah, um, good question. So I think kind of immediate next steps. We do want to get this data into a visualization system. So uh, we'll we'll work with some groups on campus to make a, a visualization system so that you can see the data a bit better if you're because there there is a lot right now in the spreadsheet that's available online. Um, also, you know we really are excited about trying to estimate the infrastructure that's supporting our food supply chain. So I luckily I was awarded a grant from NSF, the career grant to focus on doing just that, to now try to figure out the infrastructure that's critical to our food supply chain and to assess the various risks posed to our infrastructure and to try to identify uh, resiliencies and vulnerabilities that exist. Well, Megan Konar has been our guest. We certainly appreciate you stopping by. Um, it, it is a topic um, that I think a lot of people are interested in. Obviously, food affects everybody. Water affects everybody. And uh, certainly this study uh, caught our attention. And uh, just keep us informed and, and best of luck going for, forward. Thanks so much for your interest. It was great to be here. This has been another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illinois Innovators. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, or become involved in our community by using the hashtag Illinois Innovators.